Good morning. Welcome. Good to see you here this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 13 this morning. Psalm 13. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we're talking about prayer, a road less traveled, and uh, the road less traveled. And so we've been talking about what in the world does it mean for us as a church to be a church that prays? What does it mean for us to be individuals that pray? And so we want to make sure and we want to understand that there is a communication that we have with the God of the universe that this discipline of prayer is important for us to really understand who he is, what he wants, that allows our will with his will. We oftentimes will see prayer as something that is an afterthought, a transition uh, use, using it as a transition from one situation to another. Um, We use it in desperation times, but not in all times. And so the Bible teaches in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. And so we want to take, of course, the next several weeks and just really understand what does it mean to be a church that prays together. We desire for the road of prayer to be worn out here at Northwest Community Church. There is nothing that we're going to accomplish that is of significance if we are not first and foremost coming before the holy God of the universe and asking him to use all at his disposal to move in us and through us. So that's what we're talking to. We're talking about the one who created all things and we get to do that. And so if 2019 is going to be any type of a year where God shows up and God does anything, it's going to happen where we set aside and understand the beautiful discipline of a holy encounter with a holy God. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping with great hope that God will use this month of January and this messages that we've been teaching and life group questions that we've been asking that will help shape us for this year. I'm excited for the 3rd of February. We're, we're going to be able to do a real special time of just prayer and worship. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I want to call us to a week of fasting. And I'm going to talk about that next week. But I want us to get our hearts ready to come into February the 3rd and to be ready to hear from God and what he's going to do. And so next week's message will be 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's Hannah's prayer of praise for, to the God of creation. And we're going to set aside some time in that prayer. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to just have a week where we are simply, completely, utterly dependent and focused on him. And so we want to talk about fasting. And we're going to talk about how we can get our hearts ready to come in to February the 3rd, which will be the last message in the series. Okay, So I want you to, to be ready for that. Today we're going to be in Psalm 13. We've got a couple of things to say before we get there. You know that life is full of decisions, but it's also full of questions. And so questions can be easy and questions can be hard. If you're in, in your home with preschoolers or you're around preschoolers, whether you teach them here at Northwest or whether you are a grandparent to preschoolers, wherever the case may be, I think you understand that those questions they ask are pretty tough sometimes. And sometimes we just don't really have an answer for them. And we think we should. I mean, listen, you could be driving down the road. This truly happened when my kids were younger. Dad, what, what, why are they driving a motorcycle? Because um, he likes it. What is the, why is his motorcycle red, Dad? Um, what, why, why do they like motorcycles? <laughs> I'm sitting here going, I'm at a loss because I'm not sure how to answer this question. That's a silly illustration, but let me, ask you, let me, let me let you know something right now. We have questions on a daily basis to the God of the universe. Sometimes they're easier questions, and sometimes they're really difficult. And our circumstance and our situation dictates, really, the passion and the emotion behind those questions. 
We can sit there and say, well, a miscarriage, and we don't understand, and we cry out, we don't understand. Adultery, cancer, and death. We don't understand, we don't know why. We get angry, and we get cynical, and sometimes we just get plain mad. Because we don't understand. The danger that exists in regards to prayer is when we believe that he doesn't care, he's not involved, and then there's a temptation for us to say, then why pray? Two years ago this week, I stood on this stage after my mother-in-law passed away of a very difficult battle of cancer. I stood up here and I asked the question, well, then why pray? We asked for her to be healed and she wasn't. And where the Lord allowed me to stand and where I've stood today and will always stand is that when we stop praying to God, we become God. And that's incredibly dangerous. When we stop praying to God, we become God. And we, like we said a couple weeks ago, and you've heard me say, we are a cheap imitation of the real thing. And we can't settle for that. He doesn't want us to settle for that. So our situations and our circumstances are dire. They're difficult. It's a struggle. And he desires for us to call on him. And I think Psalm, Psalm 13 is great freedom and great encouragement for us to understand how we can, in the midst of just depravity and despair and heartache, to come to him and say, help me. I don't understand what you're doing. This, this message and every message that we preach is always about King Jesus. I hope you know that. The illustrations that we use are not some, that I use sometimes are not to draw attention to myself or our situation, but to help paint, help paint a picture for you. Because I know that if you were up here right now, you could talk about maybe some situations that you're going through that are really dark and really cause great anxiety in your life. I know that for Dana and I, many of you know kind of what's going on, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about those, but I, I really hope you hear me. I'm not looking to talk about this stuff, about what we're walking through right now as a way to bring attention to ourself, to bring sympathy, but to declare that we all have a battle that we're walking in. And God desires to be glorified in all of it and to make sense of it all. We don't want sympathy or attention, but I, I don't want to paint a small picture here of just some of our road, and I know that you have your road as well. In January 2017, two years ago, my mother-in-law passed away. She was my wife's best friend. She was Grammy to my kids, and she, on occasion, she was Graham Cracker. She's the greatest grandmother that I ever saw on the face of the planet. Seven months later, my father-in-law was having some issues. He's pastoring a church. The church was calling us going, something's not right. We started asking him questions. We realized something was not right. Brought him to the doctor. He's diagnosed with CNS lymphoma, one of the most rarest forms of brain cancer that you can possibly have. They gave him two months to live without chemo, and with chemo, 12 to 24 months. The issue, what they were trying to do was, we'll give the chemo to try to shrink the tumors, and then hopefully he'll get better. But I don't know who's going to come home. And in December of 2017, after five months of chemo, he came home. He came home a different man. And praise God, we, we love him, and we're grateful to take care of him. And it's an honor to do that. It's hard, but it's an honor to do that. So Christmas 2016, Kathy went into hospice. Christmas 2017, Phil came home a different man. Their grandfather came home a different man. This is going to be raw this morning. 
In December 2018, we told our kids that their mom, Dana, had cancer. The prognosis is great. It's hard. A couple of more, another surgery coming up in two weeks. A test that comes back in a week that tells if she's going to need chemo or not. And all through this right now, all through this right now, if it was not for praying to the holy God of the, of the universe, we wouldn't make it right now. So when I sit there and I say, the relationship that we have with each other, if we don't talk, it's going to be very distant. And just like the relationship that we have with God, he desires for us to have this ongoing conversation with him that does not cease if we want to know his will, we want to live out his will, then we continue to talk to him regardless of our situations and circumstances. It's too important not to. My wife is reading this book and been surrounded by an army of people that are just praying for us. And in this book, it talks about living life between two gardens. I thought it was a beautiful picture. You see, everything changed in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world. Our relationship with God was fractured. It was fractured in every aspect of life. Every aspect. But in the same chapter that we learned that it was fractured is the same chapter that we learned that there is a Savior who's going to come and make all things new. And so in one chapter, in seven verses, everything is changed. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, he says, I'm going to send you one. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, which means good news. It's the sign of grace that God is going to send to us one. And so here we have the Garden of Eden where everything was, went wrong. And our relationships and our sicknesses as a result of that fall. And then in Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, here's what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so here's what I'm telling you right now. Yes, it is ugly, but one day he's going to restore it all. And in the midst of the garden, in the midst of the garden, there is going to be junk. But let us, in the name of Jesus, hold fast. Psalm 13 is what we call a lamenting psalm. Psalms in the book of Psalms are broken down into types. And we have what's called a lament. And a lament means to express deep sorrow, grief, or regret. See, the Bible is made up of 66 books. Many people have said that there are 65 books where we learn about who God is. And in, verse, and in, in the book of Psalm, there's a compilation of all these writers that are writing to and voicing their opinion of who God is. Writing out a cry to him, saying who he is. It's a way to pray to him. It's a way to sing to him. It's a way for us to declare who he is. And Psalm 13, like many of the Psalms of Lament, are written... As beautiful poems expressing human thoughts of frustration, of, de of despair, of anguish, of depression. For whatever situation or circumstance that the writer might be going through. David penned many of these. 
They're prayers that lay out the troubling situation to the Lord. And a lot of them come with a request for him to intervene, to intercede, and to fix, and to change. There's an inscription. The lament psalms express intense emotions, real human struggle, and the anguish of heart experienced by the people of Israel as they lived out their faith individually and corporately. And I truly believe that these psalms can be used by us to help us in the middle of living life in the midst of two gardens. The one where everything was fractured and the one day where everything's gonna be made new and I can't wait for that day. Psalms of lament are broken down really into three. There's an outline for each of them. No matter how many verses they contain, they're broken down really into threefold outline. I wanna give that to you. You'll see that in Psalm 13 as we work through it together. But first, there's a cry out to God. There's just an all-out cry, God, I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing. An example of that would be Psalm 6, 6, where it says, I am weary with my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. There is a cry out to God where I don't know what you're doing. These are Psalms of lament. And then the Psalm usually changes and goes right into what's where there is an asking for help. There is, God, I need relief from this pain. I need help. I need hope. I want your salvation. Help me to see that. Psalm 71, 12 says, Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. That's an example of a lamenting psalm where they're crying for help. And then, usually the lamenting psalms, this is where they come, they come home. And that's where I want us to come today. I want us to come home and remind us the beauty, the beauty of a home where we abide in King Jesus. And so the responding, or the last part of this, is a responding in trust and praise. It's verse 12 of Psalm 86 says this, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name. So there's an outline of the Psalms of Lament, and so this morning we'll be in Psalm 13, and you'll see that outline as we make some observations or make some points as we read, and then we'll jump right into a couple of points to Wrap it up. Here we go in verse one. It says this, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You ever been there? Four times in this text, David is writing and he's asking God four different times, how long, how long is this thing gonna go on? You see, you gotta understand the context of David to really understand the context of even our situation. You have David, King David, Okay, remember King David. Well, before he was king, he was this little tiny farmer kid, son of Jesse. They came to look for the next one. Jesse says, well, I got my son. He's out in the back because he didn't want the ones in front. Jesse, uh, Jesse gets David, comes back out. Oh, you're anointed. You're gonna be king one day. David goes, he slays Goliath. If there's Time Magazine, they would put David is the man of the year, okay? Put him on the front cover. But, but what takes place right now after that is David is going to become king. Saul gets jealous of David being king. Saul tries to kill David. David is running for his life. David is hiding in a cave. David goes to the camp of Goliath to try to get help. He acts insane. He then retreats and goes to a cave and he's in a cave and he's writing a psalm of lament because he's looking at God going, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I surely didn't think it would end up this way. I thought you told me that I was gonna be king. What in the world are you doing, God? I'm not sure. 
what you're doing. I thought you said this, but now this is happening and I am really utterly confused. I am really in despair and quite honestly, I'm depressed. So he's in a cave and a lot of the Psalms of Lament that were written by David were written in this situation over a period of time for sitting there going, I don't understand what you're doing. And so here he comes, he asks the question that he starts off with is how long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I don't see what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing. And there is where David is. The fact of the matter is, is that David felt that God had forgotten him. And we need to understand that we cannot build a theology off of our feelings. We must build them off of the fact that God said in his word, I will never leave you nor forsake you, regardless of our situation or circumstance. David, David, comes here right now, and it's, it's freedom to you. And then I'll tell you right now, it's freedom to me to ask this question. How long is this going to go on? Every single one of you have either been there, and I don't mean to scare you, but you might be going there. But we must understand that all of this comes through the filter of his beautiful hands, and, Psalm, and, and, and Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so David is sitting here and he is absolutely overwhelmed and it gives me great encouragement that he just tells God the way he feels. And to be honest with you, what's been going on with us, it is freeing to me to be able to sit there and talk to the God of the universe and he is, it doesn't, it doesn't discredit his sovereignty it allows us to just voice our humanity and go on, help me. Verse two comes down here. He says, okay, God, you're not, you're not with me right now. You forgot about me. You're, you forgot about me forever. Then he comes down in verse two and he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? So David recognizes his depravity right now. He recognizes that he's not God, that God is God. And he's like, listen, you're quiet, which is allowing me to rest in myself. How much do I, how long do I have to trust me to get through this mess? How long do I have to go that way? And then David comes again and he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Says this a couple of times. He's like, there's a people that are watching. I believe in you. I trust you. They're watching what you're going to do in my life. God, do you want them to get the victory? Do you want them to win? So he says that his heart is sorrow and his heart is sorrow in his heart. It's their sorrow in his heart and it says all day. You've been there, haven't you? Just days where you just go, what is happening? Keeps going on. Verse number three says this. So we just had the cry out to God. If you go through the outline of how a psalm of lament is done and so here's the cry out and, and he's, I don't understand. And then he just comes to God and says, all right, you got to help me. And then verse three says, consider and answer me. God, I want you to hear me and I want you to answer me. Oh Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And so here's what he's declaring to him right now. He's like, okay, God, you're quiet. I don't hear you. I don't see you. So here's what I mean right now. He voices all his concerns. He just voices his frustration. Then he comes to a moment, and God, I believe over time, 
okay, over time, is just working into him going, all right, I got you where you want you. What are you asking for? I'm asking you, God, this is David. I'm asking you to open my eyes so that I might be able to see this through your eyes. I'm asking you to enlighten me so that I might see what you see and how in the world this can be used for your glory and my good. Enlighten me. Open my eyes. Paul's eyes were opened in Acts chapter 9 so that he could see what God would have him to do. The scales fell off his eyes and he was used and he was enlightened about what he was going to do and what he was supposed to be about. And and here he is sitting there and he's crying out, Lord, I just want to see what you see and how this can be used for your glory. Here, I'm going to read this to you right now. It says this, God often waits until our prayers are desperate until he hears us. The cause of the powerlessness of much of our prayer is betrayed by its lack of desperation. Desperate prayer has power not because it, it in itself persuades a reluctant God. Instead, it demonstrates that our heart cares passionately about the things that God cares about. So he says, enlighten my eyes. Ephesians chapter one, verse 17 says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Why? That you may know that what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Let me, God, let you open my eyes that I might see that. Because when I see that, it puts my situation in perspective. Verse four says this, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is very theological about what I'm getting ready to say. When I read that verse, I thought of Duke in Carolina. And that's incredibly theological, but I just thought about, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I just had a thought that whatever side you fall on, um, go Tar Heels, um, you, you want the Tar Heels to win. And you're like, we don't want the Duke Blue Devils to win. That's bad, okay? And so you look down here, and David is, is, is just saying, God, I don't want them to question you. I don't want to be overtaken by this situation. So help me, help me see. What what are you doing? Enlighten my eyes. I want to see. I think it's important for us to understand that this just didn't happen in one setting. It's very likely that this was over several uh, years that this took place. And then David is writing this as a reflection on what God did over a period of time. I think it's very, very, it would be very wrong for us to sit there and go, wow, he started off by saying, God, where in the world are you? And then by verse five, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It takes a long time to get there. And David was in that cave for a while and he was running when he was told that he was gonna be king. And so I don't want to lead you astray by saying, oh, You were here, now get there, come on. That's not, it it takes time to get there. And God is a patient God 
to reveal to us, to open up our eyes and to see it. And this is what took place over, I don't know, months, days, years. I certainly don't believe that it was just within five minutes. I think the time period was longer. And so we have this great conjunction here that just changes course through everything. And it says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Do you remember what he just said in the other verse over here? Other verse says, um, it says, I just saw this right now. How long must I take counsel in my soul and my sorrow in my heart all day? What's in his heart? Sorrow is in his heart. Then we look at verse five. Well, verse five says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation because God shows up because that's what God does. And I would be remiss to say that he does that in his own timing. And he is good. All the waves of the situation, the storms, the lightning bolts, the, the cancer, the miscarriage, the depression, the anguish. And, and David is sitting here going, God, I'm asking you to do something. Enlighten my eyes. And they were. And so where did he come back? He came back to not my situation, not my circumstance, not getting the answer that he wanted. And so he got what he, he got what he needed the most, and that's the presence of the living God in his life. The presence of the living God was revealed to him. Steadfast love. It says that I have trusted in your steadfast love. Steadfast love is translated as love, faithful love, loving kindness, gracious love, and even mercy in other translations. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's a love, a mercy, a compassion that we can trust in regardless of our situation and circumstance. You could ultimately say that David came back to his first love. Let me say that. The church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation is talking about they came back to their first love and that was for the love of God. In verse six, the last verse, this verse has wrecked us and wrecked our family and been so good. And it says, I will sing to the Lord. It's not in my notes, but yesterday I was at a funeral and I was singing and my wife says, did you hear yourself singing? I was like, I was, I felt like I was doing pretty good. She said, it sounded like you were singing like you were a soprano. <laughs> and I just said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. No, I'm scared. <laughs> you go off script, you never know what happens, right? I was singing. Here, here he is. He's come home. He's come home. I'm in utter despair. I'm in utter anguish. I have not a clue what you are doing. Enlighten my eyes. And he comes down here and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing to you. I'm going to sing to the Lord. Why am I going to sing to him? He answers the question, because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's not a word we use often. It stands out. It's a word that you go, wow, that's not like in everyday language. And here he is in this cave and he's going, wow, God, you have revealed to me that in the midst of this junk, in the midst of this sickness and whatever the case is going on, you really are good. You really are good. There's a beautiful declaration as David comes back and he sings to him. Bountifully is defined as a liberal or generous in bestowing gifts or favors. It's given or provided abundantly. The word bounty is used a lot in farming. And so, oh, the harvest was bountiful. Okay, the harvest was bountiful. So if you're planting corn and it's corn season, my cousins are farmers. They do this in Virginia and it's, 
they're harvesting the feed corn and they're doing it sometime in October and they got the combines and they're going to get that corn. Oh, the harvest was bountiful. We had a lot this year. It was plenty. And here David, listen to me, listen to me. He is not bountiful because he gave him what he wanted. He's bountiful and that he gave him full access to himself. He's bountiful because I'm giving you me. I'm giving you what you need so that you can ride this wave of suffering to me. His presence in his life is bountiful. So there's three lessons that I want us to learn and you'll, you'll get to it in a minute. I already gave you one. I went a, I went a little earlier. You'll, you'll see that in just a minute. Number one, in the darkest of days, don't cease praying, but keep praying. In the darkest of days, don't cease praying, but keep praying. David was apparently in one of the darkest seasons of his life, but here's what he did. He used this psalm of lament and that we could use this psalm of lament to sit there and keep calling on his name and asking him. Yes, we talk about our food and pray for our food. And yes, we talk about sicknesses. But when we're in desperate and dire situations, tell him what you think. He knows it before you say it. So let's tell him, don't cease praying, but keep praying. It is the Psalms of Lament allow us to voice our frustration to God in our humanity. The book of Lamentations is a book written by, penned by by God through Jeremiah, who was just so overwhelmed with the sins of Israel that there's a whole book of laments. And he's just like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I know that you know the song, Go Great is Your Faithfulness. And so that was Lamentations chapter three, where it comes up and he's just in the middle of lamenting about who, what God is doing or not understanding. Jeremiah pens these words, great is your faithfulness. Talks about new mercies that we see every day. The full range of emotions are simply on despair. So December the 13th, we got word back that the biopsy for Dana was, was cancerous. And so we gathered our kids together and we had to tell them. And that was terrible. <laughs> I'm not lying to you. It was, it was not good. And my son, a sophomore in high school, He just looked at me and he said, what have we done wrong? What have we done wrong, Dad? David is sitting in a cave and he's asking the question, how long? How long have you forgotten me? And I compared that to Andrew's question, to just asking the question, what have we done wrong? And I said, son, hear me. We have not done anything wrong. But let me tell you what would be wrong. What would be wrong is if we stop praying, we stop seeking We stop asking him and serving him. That would be wrong. And we, I mean, it's a brave heart. We as the Rice family, that is not what we're going to do. We will keep seeking. We will keep praying. And in Jesus' name, we will ask him to use this as a platform for his glory and to heal his mom. That's what we will do. Have we done anything wrong? If we stop doing those things, That is dead wrong. That would be a tragedy. That would be dangerous. That would be more despair than we could ever ask for or imagine. And we are where we are because of the prayers of God's people and the prayers that we've lifted up to a holy God and asking, we don't know what you're doing, but we trust you. Don't cease praying, but keep praying. Number two, pray to see that although God may be silent in one area, He is not silent in all areas. A lot of times when we go through this, this situation, whatever it may be, whether it's cancer, whether it's adultery, whatever relationship issue, 
it dominates our prayer life in an unbelievable way. We are consumed with praying for that, and God hears all of those prayers. But we're so consumed that we pray for it all the time. We don't see God moving. We don't hear him. He's quiet on this situation. And therefore, we build this theology that since he's quiet here, he's quiet everywhere. And I just need you to know something. That's not the God of the universe that we serve. And I want you to fight in prayer through a psalm of lament. I want you to fight in prayer to realize and recognize where he has dealt bountifully with you in your life. Even though he's silent here, he's not silent everywhere. Fight to believe that. Trust that he will reveal that to you. Focus and see the areas where he is working and where he is moving because he's God and he always moves. He's always talking and he's always moving. So see that, recognize that. And in prayer, in prayer, we can do that. That's what prayer is, is encountering him and his will. And then we have uh, one more here. I've shared this, but I'll share it again. Number three is through prayer, let the waves of suffering carry you to King Jesus. Through prayer, let the waves of suffering carry you to King Jesus. David is in this cave. He is unbelievably despaired. He is wrought. He doesn't understand what's going on. He can't see what's going on. He doesn't know what God is doing. And then all of a sudden, over, I believe, a longer period of time, not just a week, all of a sudden, his, the waves of this suffering, the waves of this disappointment, this waves of confusion, what does it bring him to? It brings him to sing. It brings him to declare that the steadfast love of the Lord and there is nothing like it. And he gets to see, oh my gosh, you have done bountifully with my soul. And so why do we have these sufferings? Why do we go through these waves of suffering? Let the waves bring you to the rock of ages. Let the waves bring you to King Jesus. That's what he wants that is one of the things he can do. And it is only him that can do that. So the Psalms of lamenting, so where does he come down? He trusted, he rejoiced, and he sang, and he just rested in the bountiful blessing of God's presence in his life. You know, that's what he did. So we cry out to God, we ask God for help, and then we come home. And I just want to read you this verse in John sixteen thirty three as we sort of close down and we go to sing together about how great God is. Here is a statement that I want to read. And if we have ears to hear, these psalms, lamenting psalms, will guard us from expecting too much in this age, too much in the middle of this garden, in between two gardens. God does not always intend his saints to experience great prosperity. Rather, the psalms of lament remind us of the truth of Jesus' statement In the world, you will have tribulation. Hold on, hold on. And point us to our great hope. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Let us, as a body of believers, living in the midst of two gardens, in the midst of waves of suffering, let those waves of suffering bring us to King Jesus. How? Through a dedication and a heart of crying out in prayer, to the God of this universe. He hears us. He knows what you're going through. It, is not, it does not go outside of him. It comes to the filter of his hands and can be used for his glory and our good for ways that we may not know. But he's good. He's dealt bountifully with us. Rest in that today. I love you guys. Let's pray. There's no one like you. There will be no one like you. 
You are sufficient, you are enough, and you are so good. These psalms of lament, God, you've used in my life to help me realize that it's okay for me to cry out to you in my humanity because I simply don't understand. I don't understand cancer. I don't understand autoimmune situations. I don't understand death. I don't understand a lot of things or why you would do things this way over this way. And I'm simply not you, and I trust, but I trust you, God. And I believe in you. And I believe that your presence in our life is what we need so that we might understand your will and your ways. Help us to see this discipline of prayer that will help get us to that place. Lord, if there is anybody in here right now that is afflicted with something that's going on in their life, I'm asking you in Jesus' name that you would heal them of that. Right here, right now, God, would you deliver them from that? Would you enlighten our eyes to see what it is that you are doing and help us never to base our theology of your involvement in our life, your presence in our life, based on our feeling, but based on the fact that you say you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And although you are silent sometimes, help us never to realize that you are silent in all areas or all the time. God, you are so good. There is no one like you. I thank you for this church. For 2019, may we experience you in a radical, radical way like we've never experienced you before. And we realize that the road to get there is a road that is worn out through a people who call on your name in prayer, in anguish, in praise, in desperation, in confidence, and with boldness. May we be known for that and by that. You are so good. I love you. Jesus' name, amen.